Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Pray with me, please. Father, it is good. It is indeed a good reminder of really what this life in Christ is all about. It's so easy for us to order our days uh, by our own concerns, by our own interests, by our own desires. It's easy for us to, on the other hand, even try to escape from the burdens and the challenges and the obligations of this life and, in a sense, almost hunker down and wait for the day when we can be delivered from this mess, the day when we can escape this world and be gathered into your presence everlastingly. And when we consider this matter of faith, and faithfulness. I pray, Father, that we are challenged in our own thinking to be reminded again that you have a very real and a very significant reason for our lives in this world. We are not merely those who have been saved and forgiven and are now waiting to be taken out of this place. We are those who have been gathered up in the new creation that has its origin and its, its very substance and life in Christ himself. That we would not only be witnesses of that new creation, but that we would, we would embody it we would be your instruments in this world. That we would live our lives with your mind according to your purpose. That we would truly be a people of faith. Father, as we consider this great father of the faith, Abraham, I pray that we would be encouraged. I pray that we would be challenged. I pray that even in considering him, we would see our own place, our own significance in this roll call of faith. The heritage that we have, the legacy that we are to leave. Meet each one of us according to our need, according to our weakness, according to the things in which we struggle, the things to which you have called us, the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Meet us Build us up in this most holy faith. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.
Well, as Chris mentioned, we began our consideration last week of Abraham, and as I said to you last time, he plays such a key role in uh, the Genesis narrative and the salvation history, and so he takes a significant place in the epistle to the Hebrews as well. He has more uh, time, more airspace, as it were, devoted to him in this chapter, chapter 11, than anyone else that the writer deals with, and appropriately so, again, because he sits uh, at such an important place in the salvation history, and once he is introduced, he really continues on. Abraham becomes the foundation for everything moving forward, and even after he's long gone, the covenant with him, the line of descent from him, ultimately the singular seed to come from him, the Messiah himself, keeps Abraham in that that forefront of of significance. So the Genesis uh, narrative, as it moves uh, from the flood into the table of nations, then the interpretation of the table of nations in the uh, the, the Tower of Babel episode, where God scatters mankind. He forms languages, uh, nations, peoples, and there's the dividing of humanity, and then there's the calling of this one man from a distant land, a man who, as Chris said, was a worshiper of other gods. And as God had scattered mankind into this uh, this this uh, alienation with one another. Now his intent, even indicated with Abraham, is that he would, through Abraham, bring the human race back together again. As it were, undo what happened at Babel. And, and those of you who remember our study through the book of Acts, that's one of the important images and ideas associated with Pentecost, is that you have God bringing together the the confusion of languages that set everybody at odds with one another, unable to communicate. Now you hear this, uh, you see this unifying of understanding, this hearing of, of the mighty works of God and the Messiah, of men of their own languages, but, but again, bringing mankind together in that way, people of every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And that was the, the promise to Abraham. Abraham, and you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. So we saw that this uh, uh, consideration of Abraham and his faith is tied to the three, at least, you know, you could say there are perhaps more, but certainly three of the more significant aspects of Abraham's life and relationship with God. All three of these things tied to the covenant that God made with Abraham. Uh, but the first thing that we considered last week was the promise of God of a land, the calling of Abraham and the promise of a habitation. Not just a land to possess like a person buys a piece of property, but a habitation. The idea being that God takes Abraham from the place of his own idolatry to bring him and gather him to himself. That Abraham will come and be where God is. I will be your God, you will be my son. We see this in Genesis 17. The promise of God is to have a people for himself. So it's not so much about a place, it's about a habitation that God will share together with his people, as it were, the undoing of the exile of Eden, the undoing of of that expulsion from God's dwelling place. As I said, from the time of the fall, God is, is doing these things and explaining what he's doing in terms of his 
undoing of the curse. Undoing of the fracture, the the disintegration, the alienation that now characterizes the whole created order. Once again, God will do this work of ordering and filling, bringing together, harmonizing, restoring. An anti-fall, anti-curse work. So the first thing as the matter of Abram's faith is this promise of a calling to gather Abram to be with God in a certain place. The second part of it pertains to the promise of a covenant heir, a covenant seed. Implied in God's promise that all the families of the earth will be blessed in you, there must be something that continues beyond Abraham. And even the changing of his name from Avham, father of a people, to Avravham, father of many peoples, which you see in chapter 17 of Genesis, indicates that there is to be a multitude of descendants associated with Abraham, so that has to at least start with one heir. That's the second thing. The third thing is then based in that promise of an heir, and not just the promise of an heir, but the necessity of an heir for God to be true to his word, for God to be faithful, for God to keep covenant. There must be this heir, and this heir himself must bear descendants. And in the context of that requirement, God calls Abram to sacrifice his son. That's the third piece that the writer of Hebrews deals with. So today I want to consider the second of those, which is the promise of an heir. And then he'll have this little parenthesis, and then he'll deal with that last piece of it in chapter 11, which is the faith and faithfulness of Abraham in sacrificing Isaac. So again, all of this comes from the section in Genesis that deals with Abram. He's introduced in chapter 11, uh, and then I believe he dies in chapter 25 or 26. But that's the extent of the Abram narrative, and the writer is drawing all of this from the Genesis account. I'll just encourage you all again, as I said before, Genesis is the kingdom prologue. It is the foundation, and we would do well to know the book of Genesis very well. It's not just an abstract, distant, ancient story with a bunch of people we don't know and care about. It really lays the foundation for all that God does from that point forward. As I said, once Abraham is introduced into the salvation history, he's the grand premise and foundation from that point forward. In the prophets in the continuing promise of God, ultimately in the Messiah himself, son of Abraham, son of David. Well, read with me then uh, Hebrews 11. We'll we'll begin at verse 8, and then today we'll consider specifically verses 11 and 12. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. 
reading from the NAS, by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore also there was born of one man and him as good as dead at that as many descendants as the stars of the heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Again, imagery that's very much tied to the promise of a multitude of descendants. In my Bible, that's all in caps, which refers to the fact that it's drawing from an uh, an Old Testament citation. So that's the passage I want to consider today, Abraham's faith in relation to the promise of an heir. And the first thing that I want to do is to consider some interpretive considerations. As I mentioned, I'm reading from the New American Standard, but there are different readings depending on what you're reading from. In these verses, verses 11 and 12, and it is a challenging passage in terms of the text, in terms of the context, in terms of even some of the linguistic issues. And as you see here, the writer specifically mentions Sarah. He specifically mentions Sarah focusing on her old age and her barrenness but set in a passage that is focused on Abraham. The entire context from verse 8 all the way down uh, to verse 19 is really concerning Abraham. That's the first thing that we note about this is the insertion, in a sense, of Sarah into a context dealing with Abraham. And you say, well, that that makes sense because she was his wife, right? And this is the promise of an heir, and she's the one who had the heir, So it's not entirely foreign. It's not like a complete change of subject to move into a a totally different direction. But there are some challenges with this. And if you look at commentators and different writings on this passage, you see some of those challenges. Uh, Just even an easy one that comes to mind is that if you're familiar with the Genesis passage, you see that If anything, Genesis tends to treat Sarah as disbelieving. Rather than having faith with regard to the promise of an heir, she actually questions that promise of an heir. When it's made known to her of having an heir, she laughs about it. And when she's confronted, she said, no, I didn't laugh. She was afraid. So she's not laughing out of joy and enthusiasm. She's laughing out of, yeah, right, that'll really happen. So that's one of the first things that people raise about this is, well, wait a minute. Was, why is he isolating or, or taking note of Sarah's faith in relation to the promise of, of an offspring, a covenant heir, when Genesis indicates that she didn't have faith at all with respect to that at the time that God made that promise? There's also, um, in the manuscripts that exist of this verse, there are lots and lots of variants. And I think the fact that there are so many variants in the Greek manuscripts that capture, again, this passage, shows that from the very beginning, copyists and people involved with the text recognized that there were challenges here. And so there were 
efforts through the centuries to, in a sense, clarify or to to tighten this up a little bit to make it a little to to um, deal with objections or questions. And we can't know for sure why all of these uh, variants exist in the text, but you can expect that when there are that number of them, that, that there were issues that copyists were dealing with, trying to figure out how to uh, deal with this, how, how to explain it better, or how to clarify. And I don't want to get too deep in the weeds there, but again, this is, the point is this has been recognized for a long time, that there's a challenge here in, in what the writer is really trying to get at and, and what he's doing. There are also aspects just in the, the, the language and, and the grammar of the passage that make it a little bit challenging to interpret, which also helps to drive some of these copious changes through the centuries. Well, in terms of, of what do we do with all of that, where do we begin, the bottom line, and this is kind of the, the, the starting point, is to say, okay, when we sort it all out, essentially what we boil it down to is there are two general basic ways to interpret what is being said here. And those two primary readings have to do with who is the subject of the statement that the writer is making. Now, the New American Standard obviously makes Sarah the subject of that faith by which seed was conceived. Several English versions adopt that view. There are other English versions that adopt the view of the implied or implicit subject being Abraham. You say, well, wait a minute, it mentions Sarah. Well, yes, it does. But in the one instance, what you have is Sarah is, it's her faith that's the issue. Which again shifts the subject away, the subject of faith away from Abraham to Sarah, then gets back to Abraham again in verse 12. If the subject is actually Abraham himself, that preserves the contextual continuity It preserves the continuity of the context as a whole. And you say, well, then what about Sarah? Well, then Sarah is being introduced here as a kind of parenthesis, a circumstantial parenthesis. In other words, Sarah is mentioned here because of the way in which her circumstance contributed to showing the remarkable nature of this conception and therefore the remarkable nature of Abram's faith. So in other words, not only is Abram beyond the time of proper, uh, the proper time of life to give birth, but Sarah herself was barren. So the one way you would read it, like the NAS has it, where it, it says, by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. The other would be, by faith implied he, he, by faith he, Sarah herself even being barren, 
which is a reading that is well represented in, in a lot of the older manuscripts, but isn't really reflected here. But by faith, he, parenthesis, Sarah herself being barren, by faith, he received the ability to father offspring beyond the proper time of life since he considered him faithful who had promised that's the other way that you can read this. And that's reflected like in the um, New International Version, the New American Bible, um, other versions as well. Well, again, there's the, the, the Greek allows at least conceivably to, to have both readings. But I would argue on balance, when you take all of the factors to bear, uh, the best reading is the second one, to have Abraham be the subject. Not only because he's the focus of this context, but also because the writer is drawing from Genesis and throughout the Genesis text doesn't deny faith in any sense with Sarah, but it makes Abraham's faith be the issue. She's the covenant matriarch by which God's promise to Abram of an heir based on the covenant with Abram that heir is brought forth. And what's perhaps the most compelling is, is the phraseology itself, the, the, the term that's here translated in a lot of versions as conceive offspring or conceive seed, really has the idea of the depositing of seed rather than the reception of seed. And you say, well, why do I care about that? It's an expression that refers to the male role of impregnating a female. And so you have to do some gymnastics with the language itself to make it be Sarah receiving the ability to have a baby conceived inside of her. When the language is really saying this is the impartation or the implantation of seed, the depositing of seed is the idea. And it's always used of the male side of conception. And to me, that's a compelling point. And also, when we look at verse 12, it shows that the writer was clearly concerned with Abram's faith in God's promise of a covenant heir and the obtainment of that heir. Therefore, also was born of one man, and him as good as dead, as many descendants as the stars of the heaven, and innumerable as the sandwiches by the seashore. The promise and the conception of a child throughout Genesis is associated with Abram's faith, not Sarah's faith. And that's not depreciating her, but just trying to, again, stay close to the, the, where the focus of the text actually is. It focuses on Abram, the promise to Abram and Abram's faith and the reception of that covenant heir. She's the matriarch through whom Abraham received the covenant heir pledged to him. And that's all I'll say about that as far as interpretive issues. And again, you know, scholars are on both sides, but I think the compelling evidence is in the direction that, that I've concluded. So you can do with that what you will. The overall sense of things, you know, the, the general application or significance of this to these Hebrew, Hebrews readers doesn't change. 
But nonetheless, I think that's the point that the writer is trying to make. So as far as the actual circumstance that the writer is dealing with, it pertains to God's promise of a covenant heir. And Genesis tracks this through a process, as I said last time, I think I mentioned this last time, that you have first implicitly, when God first manifests himself to Abram, he promises him that he will be, he will make him a great nation. He doesn't say you're going to have offspring, but that's implied, right? I'm going to make you a great nation. There's at least an an expectation that that would be what would happen. But when Abram comes into the land after he separates from Lot, remember in chapter 14, God has Abram walk, or chapter 13, has him walk throughout the land, and he tells him, to you and your descendants, I'm giving this land forever. So there he's explicit that there will be offspring. Well, Abram looks at himself. He's 90 90 years old. Sarah's 80. She was barren her whole life, even when she was young. And he concludes that I guess what God has in mind is descendants through a servant in my house. And so as God now, you, you see the, the ratifying of the covenant in chapter 15. And, and Abram says, God, what will you give me seeing that the, my heir is a servant in my house? How is this going to work? And God tells him at that time, no, the heir will come from your own body. So now Abram knows that these descendants are going to come from him. But God doesn't say that heir is going to come from Sarah. And so 10 years pass, and I assume Abram, probably Sarah as well, just assumed, okay, well, you know, maybe she is going to be the mother, as unlikely as that would be. But 10 years pass, Sarah's still barren, no baby, Sarah says, she convinces Abram that maybe the way this is going to work is through another mother. So she convinces Abram to take Hagar, her Egyptian maid, as his second wife to bear this heir. Maybe that's what God has in mind. He said this son will come from your body. He didn't say this son will come from my body. So Ishmael is born, and Abram is really optimistic that that is the heir. Oh, that Ishmael would live before you. And God said, I'll make him a great nation too, because he's your son. But he's not the heir that I promise. He's not the covenant heir. That one will come through Sarai, your wife, chapter 17. No longer do you call her Sarai. Her name is now Sarah. Princess, because kings and rulers, mighty men will come from her. The covenant seed will come from her. And then in chapter 18, you see, uh, you know, when the three men come to Abram and they say, where's Sarah, where's Sarah, your wife? And, And then they say, this time next year, the Lord will visit you and you will bear a son. That's when she goes, really? And she laughs. And she's confronted about it. But that's the process. 
And at the appointed time, as God said, you have Isaac being born, recorded in Genesis 21. A son who came from both of them. A man whose body is as good as dead. Abram is 100 years old. Sarah is 90. And she and they, Abram and Sarah, named him Yitzhak. Isaac, Yitzhak. He laughs. He laughs. And it's a testimony, a perpetual testimony to the fact that God can do anything. Nothing is impossible for him. The, the laugh of incredulity becomes a laugh of joy and delight. When you see the birth of Isaac, you, you see that idea coming out. I'll just flip there real quick. And I hope as we're going through chapter 11, you're going back and looking at these passages so you can put it into a larger context than just the summary that the writer gives. But when Isaac is born, it says, uh, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So this laughter of incredulity becomes laughter of delight. Remember how resentful she was when, even though she gave Hagar to Abram, when Hagar bore a son, she was so resentful of that. Because she had been barren her whole life, and now God gives her a son of her delight, a son of her joy, a son of her exuberance. So those are the circumstances that lead to this heir. And the important thing then beyond that is, okay, well, that's good. He had a son in his old age. That's, that's great. That's wonderful. Um, who, who really cares? Well, the significance of Isaac is monumental. To put it most simply, all that God is to Abraham is bound up in Isaac, And not just the birth of Isaac, but Isaac's own life working itself out according to God's purposes. We're going to see that more next time or, you know, down the road with the offering of Isaac. But Isaac is the very essence of of the truthfulness, the veracity of God with respect to this covenant. That's how significant he is. We're going to see in the offering of him, it's not just, boy, that would be hard to kill your own child. It's more than that. God is asking Abram to do something that calls into question that God himself is God and that God is truthful, that God himself is faithful. It calls into question all that God is, all that God has promised, all that God has covenanted. That's how significant Isaac is. He is God's covenant provision. He is the, he is the guarantee or the, the, um, the, the, the make, giving substance to the covenant itself. He is the one in whom all of God's purposes, all of God's vows to Abraham became yes and amen. And God gave him to Abram as the covenant heir against all odds and against nature itself. And that's important. 
Isaac was living proof that the living God is able to bring life out of death. And you've heard me say before that the theme of life out of death is a fundamental scriptural theme. It's a thread that weaves through the whole salvation history. Beginning with the fall, the promise of God is life out of death. The curse is described in terms of death coming over the whole creation. And the promise to Eve is that she will bear a seed through whom the serpent and his works will be overcome. And the text says at that point, Adam names her Eve because she's the mother of all the living. The text wants you to see that through Eve will come life out of death. And you see it in the replacement of Abel with Seth. Abel is killed, God gives a replacement in Seth. You see it in the flood, life out of death, a new creation. You see it even in Abram's calling, a man who is bound up, captivated in the enslavement, the darkness of the idolatrous, alienated, expelled, exiled world, God calls a man out to himself. And now the fruition of the covenant, the fruition of God's faithfulness is manifest in this reality of life out of death. Two dead bodies bringing forth life. And it continues all the way through. The covenant matriarchs, they're barren, but then they give birth, right? It, it's, you see this throughout Israel and Egypt. It's a, birth, it, it's a birth out of death in the Exodus. That's why Israel's whole calendar starts with the Exodus. This is the beginning of your days. This is the beginning for you. Life out of death. Later, when the captivities come, the promise is life out of death. Ezekiel 37, son of man, can these dead bones live? You know, O Lord. Life out of death, life out of death, life out of death. And we went through the whole Gospel of John, which has this key theme of the living one, right? I have come that they would have life. Life has come into the world in the living one. The one who embodies the life of the living God. And it obviously reaches its apex in the resurrection and the new creation. So the very essence of the covenant promise is the principle of life out of death. That's the significance of of this event. It's not just, gee, God's powerful. He can make an old woman give birth or he can make an old man, you know, conceive a baby or whatever. It's not that. The power of God is life out of death. And that will become true in the offering of Isaac as well. Abram's holding to this principle of life out of death.
Well, the Hebrews writer understood that principle and that pattern as well, and that's why he makes it the focal point in his consideration of Abram's faith with respect to an heir. That's what he emphasizes here, if you look at it again. And it's true whether you read it as as Sarah or Abram. By faith, they received this conception beyond the proper time of life, Sarah being barren. They considered him faithful who had promised. So if, if Sarah's the subject, it's again, as the NAS says, by faith Sarah, herself barren, was made able to conceive an offspring, even beyond the proper time of life. If it's Abraham, it's by faith, and Sarah herself being barren, Abram was given the ability to father an offspring, even though he was past that time of life. That principle of life out of death holds true. And one final comment about that before I conclude is that Abram as the father of faith, the New Testament makes much of Abram as the prototypical pattern of faith. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but there's only one thing in the Old Testament scriptures that is explicitly connected to Abram's faith. In Genesis 15, Paul draws on this, and he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. What was that? Look at the stars, look at the sky, count the stars if you can, so will your descendants be. It was the promise of a covenant heir is the only thing in Genesis that is is associated explicitly with Abram's faith. Why is that the case? Because, and obviously the writer is going to say, by faith he offered up Isaac. So the point isn't that Abraham's faith was simply limited to the promise of an heir, but that's the substance of his faith. So all of his faithfulness, all of his faith going forward was bound up in that, the promise of an heir through whom all of these covenant promises would be realized. It's that faith, it's that believing God for an heir that is the lens through which all of Abraham's subsequent acts of faith and faithfulness must be viewed. It's the way that his faith in offering Isaac has to be viewed. So the text makes much of saying, Abraham, the man of faith, okay, what was his faith? He believed God for an heir. Not just an offspring in his old age, but the one in whom all of the covenant promises and the one in whom all of the veracity, integrity of God was bound up. Well, I want to just draw out some observations about how this contributes to our understanding of faith. Because remember, again, what the writer is doing here is he is reciting this catalog of faithful people to help to inform and bolster the faith of his readers who are struggling, who are wrestling in difficulty, in hardship, in persecution, in loss. This isn't just a theology lesson. It's not just a review of Genesis for them. It's actually him trying to say, here's how you understand faith and faithfulness. 
So in terms of this particular passage, however we want to understand it, whether Abraham is a subject or Sarah, the, a core issue in it is that this faith involved believing that God is faithful. Look again at what he says. Beyond the proper time of life, since she or since he considered him faithful who had promised. They believed that God would indeed fulfill his promise of a covenant heir, even in circumstances that rendered that fulfillment humanly and naturally impossible. Life out of death. And it reinforces what we've already seen to this point. First of all, it reinforces what we've seen concerning faith already. And I mentioned this last time. Faith believes God for what he has promised as he interprets what he has promised. Faith is not believing God for what we believe, for what we desire, for what we expect, for what we hope for. Faith is relating to God, understanding our place in his story, not writing him into our story. This is a fundamental way in which we are naturally, consummately idolaters. Even as Christians, our natural thing is to make ourselves the point of reference, and God is the agency by which the things that we desire or seek or think are right or proper or good or just or needful or appropriate, he is the agency by which those things will come to pass. We write him into our story. When the writer says that they believe that God was faithful, he's not saying that they believe that he was faithful to give them what they want or what they thought was good or proper or needful. He was faithful to do what he said he was going to do, to give this heir with all of the significance of what's wrapped in, into this heir, Isaac. And that's why I made much of the significance of Isaac. They're believing God, not just that I'll have a baby in my old age. Gee, that's great. I've wanted to be a father my whole life. It's that what God has pledged as his intent for the world, he will do. And they believe him for that. So that is this point of, of reiteration of what we've already seen in looking at these individuals before Abram. But also these verses add to that understanding of faith, the principle of faith, in at least three ways, the three ways that I want to point out today. The first is that we see from these verses that faith believes and holds on to the God who has promised, not the thing that he has promised. And I've said this many times in the past in different contexts, but it comes out very clearly here. Why do I say that? Well, I thought we believe God for what he promised. See, the writer emphasizes that they believe that God is faithful. Their faith was directed towards him and his integrity, 
Remember, all along the way, they, they kept trying to think how this was going to work out. Okay, it must be through my servant. Okay, it must be through another woman other than Sarah. They're thinking it through. They're, they're trying to figure out how God's going to do what he's going to do. This is why we believe the God who's promised and not what he's promised. Because we don't have an absolute ability to understand how that promise is going to be fleshed out. What it's really going to look like. And when we say, okay, this is what God has promised, then when it doesn't work out the way we thought that was going to work its way out, then we say God isn't faithful. This was the great point of disconnect with Jesus himself. Israel had a very deep, thoroughgoing, messianic and kingdom hope and expectation, but it didn't look like him. And so they judged him not not on the basis of really what God, how he fit into God's picture of what God was going to do, but their expectation of what the Messiah would be. And they concluded he's not the Messiah. Not because he wasn't the one that all the scriptures had spoken of. He said himself, if you believe the scriptures, you would know that I am he. And it wasn't because they didn't believe the scriptures, but they were bound over to their expectation of what the scriptures were promising. So faith believes the God who has promised, not the thing that is promised. He's faithful to his purposes that lie behind his promises, not our understanding of what he's promised, not our expectation of what these promises are going to look like, how God is going to do what he has said. It's his purposes behind his promises that he's faithful to, not our interpretation or expectations. Following out of that, again, another clear principle from the scriptures, but very much clear in the Abraham example, is that faith isn't sight. Faith and sight as scriptural principles are the two ways in which we can perceive and order ourselves with respect to reality as we know it. You can live by faith or you can live by sight. And sight doesn't mean that a blind person has to live by faith because he has no sight. Sight is just a, a, an, um, a symbol for life by the senses, What I see, what I know, what I experience, what my background tells me, what my circumstances tell me, what I can rightly, reasonably expect. It's what actuaries do every day, right? They work the odds, they work the statistics. This is what I can expect. And that's the way we all naturally live. We live by our senses, what we know to be true. Faith is the opposite. Faith is not living by what we have seen and known and experienced and what we can predict and, and what the odds tell us how something's going to work out. That Abraham and Sarah were trying to trace God's hand. Abraham didn't disbelieve God, but they were saying, okay, maybe this is how. Maybe this is how. This is how it's going to be. They weren't saying, forget God, we don't trust him. They were saying, as we all naturally do, okay, this is what it's going to look like. Right? 
When you're a kid, you think about, okay, this is what it'll look like to get married. This is what, you know, you're going to go on vacation and go to some, you know, tropical place or whatever, and you have an idea in your mind of what it's going to be like. And when we hear God say, this is what I'm going to do, our minds can't help but start figuring out what that's going to be. And we want to let the idea in our head be what we bind God to. Faith is in sight. They are mutually exclusive means of perception. And then the last thing, and this is something that perhaps we struggle with, is that faith is actually synergistic. Synergism means things working together. Faith is synergistic. It involves ordering our lives according to God's purposes and promises and our place in them. If you want to put it this way, faith requires something on our part. It's not something that just happens up here. Faith has a synergistic quality to it. It's our lives being ordered intentionally, consciously, purposefully, according to God's purposes and promises and our place in them. If you want to put it this way, faith involves our faithfulness to the God who is faithful. Our faithfulness to the God who is faithful. And we see all of these things again in this circumstance of the promise of an heir to Abraham and Sarah. They were obliged to believe God and to trust him for this promise of an offspring, not strategize how that was going to work based on their circumstances. Okay, I'm old, I'm barren, this can't happen, you're old, how's this going to work? Let's figure out what seems to be the way in which this would come to pass. They were to believe and trust God, but that required that they act in faith. I don't know if you've thought about this, and it's implicit in the text. The writer doesn't say that, and it doesn't say it explicitly in Genesis, But believing God for this promise involved Abraham and Sarah engaging with one another as a very old man and a very old woman in a sexual way. What would have seemed awkward and maybe even comical at that age They acted in faith. They intentionally gave themselves to one another, trusting that God would both enable that action and also make it fruitful. God didn't just implant a baby in Sarah's womb. That's what I mean that faith is synergistic. They acted according to the obligation of what God had promised. They didn't sit back and wait for God to do something. That action itself was a great act of faith that they had to undertake together, right? 
something was required of them. This is the sense in which the writer can talk about their faith enabling this ability to conceive. We can read this and and, and misunderstand when he says um, she received ability to conceive or Abraham was given the power to conceive since they considered him faithful. It's easy to read this as a cause and effect thing and say, okay, well, somehow faith gave him the power to do this or gave her the power to do that. Or somehow, you know, the, the, the conception of Isaac was God's reward for their faith. You believe me and I'll do this. And it's not that. And much less was it, you know, faith is a talisman that if you believe me, that moved God to do this work. And that's very common in our culture, in many Christian circles. If you believe God, there's power in that thing called faith, and it will move him to do this thing that you want. Faith is a talisman. Faith is magic. If there's no sin in my life, if I deal with my sin and I just believe God enough for this, then it'll come to pass. It's magic. But the writer is saying that their faith was the instrumental cause, the instrument of the fulfilled promise. It was their faith that allowed them, that moved them to engage themselves in a way that would see the promise of God come to pass. A very old man and a very old woman saying, God has promised to do this. And when Isaac is born, the text is clear. This is a baby from Sarah's body, from Abraham's body. And that underscores, and this is where I'm going to close, but that underscores a very important truth that, again, we tend to miss, particularly when we have you know, what we think is a high view of God's sovereignty, which is that God rarely works in isolation. Can he do the miraculous? If we define, you know, we, we say, oh, that's a miracle. My car started today when it didn't start yesterday. That's a miracle. I was so sick yesterday, I feel better today. That's a miracle. We use miracle for anything that seems kind of amazing to us. But technically, a miracle is a setting aside of normal laws and processes. A miracle is when God acts apart from the processes and principles and laws of nature that he's put in place. And he rarely does that. You look at the whole of the salvation history and there's very little that is miraculous about it. God can act outside of natural processes and laws, but he chooses in most instances to work within them. He even reveals himself and his purposes, but he reveals himself and he accomplishes his purposes through the lives and the lips of men. He doesn't just zap things into being. 
And if you don't believe that's the case, that God reveals himself through the lives and the lips of men, who is the great embodied act and revelation of God, Jesus the Messiah? He is the supreme, comprehensive, all-inclusive speech act of God, right? God says, you want to know who I am? Look at him. Listen to him. Observe him. Hear his words. Watch him. You'll know who I am. Jesus is the one in whom God preeminently manifests his own mind and being and purposes and goals. And he didn't do that abstractly in Jesus. Jesus didn't walk around saying, I'm divine. He lived a life of intentional, willful faith and faithfulness. And in that way, God's purposes were accomplished. How did God fulfill what he had promised all the way back? He fulfilled it through the faithfulness of the man Jesus. There's the synergy of faith. I always do what pleases my father. If it's possible, let this pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. Jesus wasn't just doing what he was told to do. It was that the whole of the Father's being and purpose and and mind and intentionality was bound up in his own acts of faith and faithfulness. Jesus ordered his own life according to his place in God's story. So what's the point? It was that way with Abraham. It was that way with all of these people of faith. And saints, it's the same with us. Faith isn't believing that God's going to do something and sitting back and waiting for him to give us what we need. I need a job, God. Okay, pray about this job. Okay, I have faith God's going to give me a job. And I'm not saying that, you know, we don't need jobs or whatever. That's not the point. But we think that faith is simply saying, God, here's what I need, and then I sit back and wait for it to happen. Faith is a life that is ordered by faithfulness. Faith looks like a life that is conducted according to what we know to be true. Our place, what God is doing and our place in his story. And as I said last time, he doesn't expect great things from us. He doesn't expect us to go out and change the world. He doesn't expect us to change the American government or whatever it happens to be. He calls us to live out our days, the circumstances of our lives in such a way that we testify by our priorities, by our practices, that this God is true, this God's purposes will stand, and I have a place in them. Abraham didn't change the world, and in many ways he failed. But both he and Sarah said, God has promised an heir, and indeed the whole future of the cosmos is bound up in this child. We need to lie together. 
A simple, comical, absurd human act. But that's what, they, that's what God required. That's what their faith required. That's how faith and faithfulness work together. We have to order our lives and our, the priorities and practices of our lives around what God has revealed that he is doing, what his goals are in Jesus and what we're a part of. Years ago, John MacArthur wrote a book called Faith Works, and he was talking, you know, he was really dealing with the easy believism thing, that you have to believe, but you also have to obey. And I don't want to oversimplify it, but it was tied to this thing, if you really believe God, then you got to do what he says. But faith does work, but in the sense not of, okay, believe, but you also have to do these commandments. But the work of faith is the authentic, active life of conforming to the truth of where we are in this story of God. If you want to put it this way, it's that what faith, how does faith work? Faith lives out the reality of new creation. It doesn't mean this job, that job, this house, this mission field, this, 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 that. It means we live out the reality of new creation in our circumstances, in our homes, in our work, in our world. In our world. We are the beginning of God's new creation, but his design is the renewing of all things. And we are the instruments in that process. God isn't going to do this in a vacuum. We are the the instruments that God has chosen in this work of the spreading and growth of the kingdom, the work of new creation. And when we simply say, okay, I believed in Jesus, I'm saved, now I'm going to hunker down and wait to get out of here to go off to heaven, we're denying what faithfulness actually is. Because the goal that God has, the story that we're a part of, isn't for our spirits to fly off to heaven and get off of this polluted, you know, corrupt globe. This is God's good creation that in Jesus he is restoring. And as we are sharers in Jesus, we are a part of that work of renewal. We testify to it by lives of faithfulness. It is God's good creation. And we are to, if we are to be faithful people, people who have faith, we have to have our lives be ordered according to this thing that we are truly a part of. And that might look like being involved in politics. It might look like being involved in the education system. It doesn't look like going and hiding in a cave until the rapture comes. Abraham didn't say, gee, God, that's great. You're going to give me a child. I'm waiting for it. He ordered his life according to that promise, according to that truth. Our faith has to work. But what does it mean for our faith to work? What's the synergy in our faith? It's the same synergy that we see in Jesus where he said, I have come to do this work that the Father appointed to me. 
He didn't say, I've come to keep the Decalogue because that's God's moral law. He didn't say that. The works that we're called to are the works of faith, authentic, active life of new creation. When Paul talks with the Corinthians, and I'm just going to leave this with you for your meditation, I really am done. Paul deals with this issue of resurrection. And again, the Corinthians are thinking, okay, it's this sight issue. How can this happen? How can the dead be raised? How can a corpse come out of the ground? What about the corruption? You know, this body's decaying. How's this going to work? And Paul says, you don't get it. This resurrection is not a corpse coming back to life. This is a physical transformational renewal of the body that corresponds to the inward renewal that we have in the Messiah now. It's not a corpse coming out of the ground that you're trying to figure out how could that happen. But what is, why is that important? Why is the resurrection important? Why is the consummating of this new creation important? What does it mean to us now? Paul says, brethren, I'm telling you, flesh and blood cannot inherit the consummated kingdom of God. The perishable does not inherit the imperishable. This is not a corpse coming out of the ground. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, either through death or apart from death. Some of us who are alive and remain will be transformed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. And in that day, the dead will be raised imperishable. We shall all be changed. This perishable must put on imperishability, the imperishable quality. This mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on imperishability, the imperishable, and when this mortal will have put on immortality, then at last it will come about what the scriptures has said, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory at the last? O death, where is your sting? And then Paul says the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the point. Therefore, my beloved brethren, learn this doctrine. Uphold the resurrection of the dead. No, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the Lord's work. For you know that your toil in the Lord is not in vain. We're not just working to work. We're co-laborers with God in this work of new creation. And what will keep us going, what will keep us from being discouraged, what will keep us persevering to the end is this understanding of our role in this great story of God. Life out of death. Father, these are things that we really need to think about, and they're things that, they, that need to have a, a determinative quality in our lives. We all know that we struggle with maintaining a right perspective. Many things in life are constantly beating against us, pressing against us, requiring our time, our energies. 
Many things confront us. Many things frighten us. Many things discourage us. Many things in this world can captivate our hearts and our minds in negative ways and positive ways. And Father, it's very easy for us to think in terms of dotting I's and crossing T's in our piety as a way to move you to give us what we seek. To do what you want us to do so that you will do what we want you to do. We'll scratch your back if you'll scratch ours. And Father, I pray that you would help us to see from all of these who've gone before, even really from Jesus himself, that what you want are sons and daughters who will simply walk with you day by day, who will meet the circumstances, the struggles, the trials, the challenges of life with faith. And that means that they will meet life having their own hearts and minds, priorities, practices bound over to what they know you're doing and to their own place in that work. We get so preoccupied with so many things. I pray, Father, that we would be about the things that you're about. That we would truly be such people Regardless of what we understand, regardless of how we think something might work or how it can't possibly work, that we would simply meet the circumstances of the day saying, we will do what you put in front of us. We will walk this out. We will meet the day by your grace and by your power, the power that's even perfected in weakness. There's nothing more freeing than that. There's nothing more glorious than that. There's nothing more true to our sonship in Christ than that. May we be such people. May we keep it that simple. All these things, Father, we ask of you and we we plead for your continued guidance, your continued illumination, your continued resource of understanding, of compulsion in Christ our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.